Today I am continuing this series that James kicked off, The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, and one of the things that James talked about, uh, just to give you a very quick recap of it, was how this uh, series fits into our Live Like Jesus discipleship framework. Uh, if you were part of the church a year ago, you would know that we set out uh, a new discipleship strategy for you know, want of a better phrase, where we were just like, you know what, as followers of Jesus, as his disciples, you know, our goal is to learn to live like him. And in order to do that, we were like, over the coming years, we need to uh, put into practice rhythms and principles and, uh, and practices that Jesus did in order to learn to live like him. Uh, and we had two pedals that we wanted to push on, that we would be with Jesus and that we would do what Jesus did. And that as we push on each of these pedals, it's in that process and in that place that we're transformed. And in the context of this series, it's in that kind of rhythm of pushing into being with Jesus and doing what he did that we're transformed into holiness. So that's the framework for this series, the pursuit of holiness. Let's jump into our base passage uh, for this series and, and where I'm going to be in today, 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, uh, if you've got your Bibles open, if you're new to the scriptures, then 1 Peter is right towards the end. Uh, go Get to Revelation and go back a few books and you'll find it quick enough. But 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples. Uh, and he was writing to churches across uh, an area that is now modern day Turkey. Uh, but back then, these churches were experiencing great persecution and Peter was writing them to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. And so that's the context for this letter. And we're going to pick up in chapter one in verses, uh, verse 14, and we're going to read through just to verse 19 today. It says this, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Holy Spirit, I pray that you administer to each person listening or watching today as I preach the word. God, would you... Come, convict us, challenge us, equip us, encourage us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in verse 16 of this passage, we find an instruction, a command. Be holy because I am holy. And if we've been around church for a while, we're probably familiar with that phrase, that command. We might have read it uh, in Leviticus. We might have read a similar thing that Jesus says in, in uh, Matthew 5, when he says, be perfect as I am perfect. You know, be holy as I am holy is a command that's repeated eight times in seven verses in the Bible, which makes it one of the more uh, repeated direct commands in Scripture. And what is true for Scripture is true for marriage, that the more something is repeated, the more the husband should listen. <laughs> but in Scripture, I'm not saying anything. In Scripture, the more something is repeated, the more the authors are wanting you to grasp just how important that thing is. And so we really need to take note of this command. But you know what? It's, it's, it's more than a command. Be holy because I am holy is actually a gracious invitation. Because if we view it as a command or an instruction, I think actually underlyingly what's happening is we're viewing it as if a distant, angry God was saying to us, you need to be better. You need to be more moral. 
Whereas how we should be viewing it is as a loving father wanting us to experience his best. Remember what James said last week, God's holiness is his best for us, not his burden for us. Why? Why is that so? Because it is becoming like God. And God is perfect, which means that all of his attributes, his characteristics, his nature, they are the best possible attributes, characteristics and nature. So when we become like them, it's the best version of that. It's the best thing for us. Simon Ponsonby, the Anglican vicar and theologian, he is just an absolute legend. If you've not come across him before, he's an absolute legend. Uh, But his work on holiness has greatly, greatly helped this series. So I want to give a a special mention to him. But he says this in his book, The Pursuit of Holy, uh, The Holy. Uh, He says, holiness is conforming our lives to God's will, not as subservient creatures before their creator, not as soldiers before their commanding officer, but as sons and daughters and lovers of God. The highway of holiness will involve certain appropriate deeds and don'ts, but the motive, the goal, the union, and is union and communion with God. Holiness is about companionship with the divine. To be holy is to be fully alive, fully human, whole, as God intended. When we grasp this, it is actually incredible that to be holy as I am holy is God inviting us to become like him. See, this is the creator of the universe, isn't it? This is the king of kings inviting us into intimate relationship with him where we get to take on his nature and authority. What other king or queen wants to share the glory of their throne with their subjects? What prime minister or president wants to share the power of their office with their citizens? This is a crazy invitation from God, isn't it? That he would have us in our mess and our brokenness. He'd say, hey, would you become like me? The invitation of holiness is an invitation to a life that becomes like the God who is himself the definition of holiness. So if I was to ask you, (laughs) are you holy as God is holy? How would you be doing? (laughs) You know, when you put it like that, it's quite a challenging question, isn't it? And before we get to answering it too much, I imagine some of us may be responding by going, well, what does it even mean to be holy? And that is a great question. One of the things that I find uh, helpful is when a way of understanding concepts and things in the Bible is to look at how they are positioned with other words, how other words are used in relation to them or next to them. And so if we do this with um, with holiness, in scripture, we find holiness alongside cleanliness in Isaiah, purity, blamelessness, honour in 1 Thessalonians, glory in Ezekiel, righteousness, in Ephesians, godliness in 2 Peter, goodness, truthfulness, trustworthiness and awe in the Psalms. You know, those things, they're a list of attributes and characteristics, aren't they, that help us understand what holiness is and what holiness looks like. And holiness then is a way of behaving that's determined by the being of God. It's a way of behaving in line with those things. And so if we were to take those things into account, <laughs> How are we doing? How holy is our life right now? Now, 
I don't know about you, but I think sometimes I'm actually doing okay with some of those things. You know, I feel on fire for Jesus and I'm, I'm pursuing them. I'm pushing into those things. It's like, yes, this is going quite well. <laughs> but most of the time, I, I don't feel very holy. You know, I, I don't actually need to spend very long <laughs> to look at my life to see all of the ways that I've acted or thought that are opposite to that list of characteristics and attributes that are the complete opposite to holiness. You know, whether it's pride or vanity or greed or selfishness, you know, the list could go on and on and on. And that's just before breakfast. <laughs> you know, we are messed up. And the problem is, as Hebrews 12 verse 1 say, uh, accurately puts it, the problem is the sin that so easily entangles. You know, we all struggle in the pursuit of holiness. Whether we are coming at it with hearts on fire and just wanting to run after it, or whether we feel more apathetic, we all struggle because we are entangled with sin. At the start of the passage in 1 Peter is an exhortation from Peter not to fall back into the evil desires we had before we were saved by Jesus in verse 14. See, what Peter is doing in this moment is he is acknowledging that, of course, we're still tempted and entangled with those desires. You know, otherwise he wouldn't need to mention it. He could just skip that part. But he is aware that for all of us, uh, the human experience is to struggle with these things, is to be entangled with sin. So he's saying, well, hey, when those desires come, well, don't fall back into those ways of life. Even when we're full of passion, even when we're full of desire to honour God, that entanglement is still there. So let's talk about... (laughs) The entanglement of sin. How, how's your sin? How, what's entangling you right now? Don't worry, I'm not, not going to ask you to comment on the YouTube video or email in or anything like that. But it's a confronting question, isn't it? As we gather as church to think about. Why? Well, because in, in modern Western Christianity, we don't like to talk about sin. You know, we much prefer to focus on the God who loves us and chases after us and redeems us and calls us son and daughter, all of which is true and is incredibly important. And, and I spent much of my ministry trying to help people understand those truths. But what I've seen in the Western church, especially over the last five or 10 years, is that we focus so much on those things that we've then ignored God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness. And there are many problems with that, but one of those, one of the problems is that one of the results is that people then don't see their sin as that much of a problem. And a certain blasé attitude has developed in the Western church towards sin, and it grieves me. You know, but it it grieves me because this blasé attitude has also developed in my own heart. I, I don't know about you. But I have had moments where I'm just like, actually, do I care? Like, how much do I think this is a bad thing? Do I really care about sin and holiness? I read Reset by um, Jeremy Riddle uh, at the start of this year. Uh, and it's a great read that is, is calling the church back to purity and holiness, especially in prayer and worship. And Jeremy is a great prophetic voice uh, into the church to call us back to those things, to say, let's not conform to the ways of the world. Let's not be swayed by the voice of culture. Let's hold firm to the truth of Jesus. Uh, and I read this book and I just had to repent because I was like, Lord, I have become blasé. I have become complacent. I've just, it's, it's seeped in 
They're skewing their eyes. Is sin really that big a deal? God, are you really that holy? I see it in my own heart. And I see it across the Western church where so many of us just get to a place where if we were actually honest, if we didn't give the cliche Christian answer, we don't think that sin is that big of a deal. And there's a real problem with that because if sin isn't that big of a deal, then the cross isn't that big of a deal. And if the cross isn't that big of a deal, then the resurrection isn't that big of a deal. And if the resurrection isn't that big of a deal, then our faith is pointless, is useless, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And we should be pitied above all others. We can't be blasé about sin. Last week, James unpacked Isaiah 6 and this encounter that Isaiah has when he comes into the throne room of God and he, he meets God's holiness. And in that moment, he is overwhelmed and he becomes so aware of his brokenness, of his sin. It's this moment where he witnesses something so majestic that it reveals something about himself. I, not, you know, every analogy is limited, but I find it helpful to think about this in the context of looking into the night sky. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you gaze upon a clear night sky and you just realise how small you are. I had a moment like this um, about 10, 10 or so years ago. I was in uni. No, I'm a bit more than that. Oh dear, I'm a bit old now. Uh, years ago when I was in uni and uh, hitchhiked to Morocco with some friends for charity. My word, I didn't want to hitchhike ever in my life before that moment. I definitely don't want to then. But we got to Morocco eventually with some good stories along the way, which I'll maybe share in another preach sometime. Uh, but we got there and we took a camel ride into the Sahara Desert and we stayed overnight there. And my word, we just lay on the sand looking up and it was the most beautiful night sky I have ever, ever seen. It was crystal clear, more stars than I've ever seen. And, and the three of us just lay there looking up and for most of the time was just in silence. And it wasn't awkward because actually it was the appropriate response because we were being humbled. We were in awe. We were, there was this reverent fear almost. And what was happening was our insignificance was being revealed our tininess, the majestic, the majesty of the universe. And you know, the guys I was with, they weren't Christians, and so they'd have had probably a slightly different experience to me in that moment. But for me, it was that moment of going, God, whoa, you are so big, you are so mighty, you are so powerful, and I am so tiny. It's that moment, isn't it, when we gaze up and it reveals something about us. That's often what happens. That's what happened for Isaiah when he encountered God's holiness, and that's often what happens for us. When we encounter God's holiness, he reveals our sin. Now, when <laughs> that happens, well, there are two responses. We can either run to God for mercy, confessing our sins, falling onto his grace, being like, Lord, we need you, which is what Isaiah did. He goes, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And, and the Lord in that moment brings the coal onto his lips and restores him, redeems him, brings his, imparts his holiness into Isaiah. Or... So that's one response. We can run to God's mercy or we can pull away from God. We can downplay our sin. We can deny our sin. We can even actually begin to deny God as the basis for moral authority. How do you respond? How are you responding right now? Maybe over the last week, maybe last Sunday, God began to reveal some sin in your life, reveal how holy he is. How have you responded? If you look back, over your walk with Jesus. Maybe you've been following Jesus for 60 years. How do you see patterns in your life of, of when you have run to his arms for mercy and when you've pulled away? 
To see God, to encounter Christ, Simon Ponsonby says, is among many other things to be immediately conscious of failing, of falling far from God's perfection, beauty, glory and purity. His light exposes all blemishes. You know, whether today we are like Isaiah and deeply aware of our brokenness or whether we're in a place of apathy towards sin or apathy towards God, his light (laughs) reveals all blemishes and we are all blemished. Sin is a universal condition. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Neither in the context of those letters, neither Jew nor Gentile was, was different. All had sinned. There is no differentiation. All of us, the, the human condition is to be infected with the disease of sin. We are entangled with it. Now, it's easy at this point, wouldn't it, to feel pretty heavy. <laughs> to, to be like, well, okay, well, great, thanks, man. I, I've tuned into church today and it just hit me with how much of a mess I am, how much of a sinner I am. Well, James shared a great quote from Tim Keller last week that I want to share again. The real holy God never shows you your sin except to heal you with his grace. The real holy God never rubs your nose in your flaws except to bring a coal and put it on your lips. God reveals our sin in order to transform us. Because to understand the beauty of God's holiness, to walk in his holiness, to receive that invitation of be holy because I'm holy, to do all of those things. Actually, the the reality is we need to understand the ugliness of sin. We will not see the beauty of holiness until we understand how deeply offensive and ugly sin is. But when we understand how deeply sinful we are, we will understand how incredibly good the good news is. And when we realize that God reveals our sins not to condemn us, but to liberate us, that is life-changing news. So you might be asking at this point, well, if God reveals our sin in order to transform us, in order to make us holy, why do I still sin? The example I often give for this, and you'd have heard it many times if if you've heard me preach, is, is of when a child is adopted. In that moment, the adoption certificate is signed, that child's identity changes. They can never become more or less a member of their new family. However, it will take them time to learn the ways of the family, the odd habits, the jokes that the dad says, the funny Christmas traditions, all of what makes being part of that family part of that family. The reality is that child's identity has fully changed, but they are learning to live in the way of the family. The same is true for us as we are learning to live like Jesus and walk in holiness. We are saved and we become children of God, but it's through being with Jesus and doing what Jesus did that we start to shift our mindset and our desires start to align with God's heart. You know, if you have, maybe you've come to know Jesus in your mid thirties, you've had over three decades of living a different way to God's way. It's going to take some time to unravel and disentangle i'm not even sure that's a word that the desires that you've had and the sinful desires that have built up over that time and adopt god's practices doesn't mean that you're not saved doesn't mean that your identity isn't changed it's just the reality of the both end we're saved justified to use a more theological word 
and then we are sanctified, this process of being made holy. So, it's all well and good. Well, how do we do this? How do we deal with the sin that entangles and step into this invitation to become holy like God is holy? Well, I want to give us four things as I close out today to help us do this. The first is this, to know that our sin has been dealt with. See, a holy God must judge and remove sin. And in his righteous wrath, sin must be punished. So sin, it has to be dealt with. And this is what we read about in verses 18 and 19 in today's passage. For you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. See, this, it wasn't with trivial things that you were saved, that your sin was dealt with, but with the precious blood of Christ, verse 19, a lamb without blemish or defect. It was the blood of Jesus that bought our redemption. It was the blood of Jesus that took away our sins. Jesus went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice, as the only ever sinless person. And he took the punishment for sin that we all deserve. While we were still sinners, Romans 5 verse 8 says, Christ died for us. While we were still in our brokenness and our mess, God didn't wait for us. He is the God that chases after us. He is the God that runs towards us. He is the God that loves us with an unending love. And that love meant that he would bear the punishment due to us so that we could become holy like he is holy so the first thing in in living free of sin is that we would know that our sin is dealt with the second thing is so jesus dealt with our sin and its power is gone is to know that we are dead to sin and alive in christ romans 6 uh, verses 11 and 14 say this, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And then verse 14, for sin, shall now, for, sorry, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin has lost its power over you. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer bound to sin. Jesus defeated sin. You are free from its power. So yes, <laughs> It may still rear its ugly head at times. It may still try and tempt you at times, but it's lost its power over you. Number three, know that we have the power to take every thought captive. Love this, what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So when those desires come, when they rear their heads and that they're opposite to God's holiness, we need to remember, hey, we're, like, we're dead to this. It's lost its power. Our sin's been dealt with. And I've actually got the power to take that thought, take it captive and get rid of it. That's what Romans 12 verse 2 is talking about when it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world. But renew your mind. Take captive that thought. Get rid of it. So these are the first three things. And on the fourth one, I just want to dive in a little bit to, okay, what does some of that then look like? You know, if you have a survey of your house done and it highlights some major structural flaws and you don't do anything about it, you still have a broken house. You know, if we become aware of our sin, uh, unless we confess it and repent of it, unless we take captive the thought, we won't be freed from it. 
Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, we have the power of life and death in the tongue. There is something hugely powerful in declaring and confessing our sin to the Lord. And so this is the fourth thing. Once we know those things, that our sin has been dealt with, that we're dead to sin and alive in Christ, that we can take captive every thought. The fourth thing is that we're going to come and confess our sins to the Lord. Confession is hugely powerful. And this idea of repentance is much like trading your sin for God's truth. The reality is you can't trade something you don't own. And if you let me borrow your car, say if you've got a car, whilst I'm driving around in it, if I think to myself, hmm, (laughs) I can make some money here. Now, obviously, depending on your car, it might be a few hundred pounds or it could be a few thousand pounds. But if I take it to a dealership and I try to trade it in, at some point in that process, they're going to ask me for documentation to prove that I own it. And if I then say, well, actually, I don't own it, they're going to kick me out. They say, well, you can't trade this in. See you later. The same is true for our sin, for our for the sinful desires that rear their heads, for the thoughts that come in that are opposite to God's holiness. We can't trade our thoughts, our sinful desires with the Lord's truth unless we aim them, unless we admit to thinking them. We can't repent and change our mind and align ourselves with God's way unless we own up to the fact that we are broken, that we're messed up. 1 John 1 verse 9, our God is faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins. Love that verse. He is faithful. But we have to come to terms with our sinfulness and our sinful desires in order to own them, confess them and trade them for God's holy way of life. We can't be blasé about it. This is why if we live in a place of apathy where we don't actually think that sin is that big of a deal, that we're not really sure if we're even that much of a sinner, where we don't think that God is a holy God, who is the authority for the moral order and that sin is 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 a grief to him well then we're not going to come to that place where we own our sin and we admit it and we come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm helpless. I've got nothing. I am a mess. I have messed up. Would you forgive me? And that's my prayer for us, that as we go on this pursuit of holiness, that we would take the invitation God has given us to be holy because he is holy. As this just this mind-boggling, wonderful thing that God would invite us into that. And then we'd say, okay, well, God, I want to live in that. And how am I going to do that? Well, I am going to know that my sin has been dealt with. I am going to know that I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. I'm going to know that I can take uh, every cap- so every thought captive, every sinful desire, every evil thought that comes into my mind. I'm going to take it captive. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to do that by trading my sin and confessing it to you. I'm going to own it, Lord. I'm not going to hide away and pretend like I'm not messed up, that I don't sin. I'm going to own it to you, Lord, and I know that you will be faithful and just to forgive me and to purify me. So we are learning to live like Jesus. And we have this invitation into a new way of life where we take on the character, nature and authority of God himself. And my prayer is that you would see this as God's best and not his burden for us. May we never be blasé just about how amazing what Jesus has done for us is, that we would, re- we would revel and rejoice in the good news of the gospel that has defeated the power of sin, that leads us to forgiveness 
and an ability to walk in holiness. Amen.